0: Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to look upon your word of truth once more, we ask again that you will open our eyes, that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears, that we may hear and understand what you would speak to us, and that you will open our hearts, that we might receive that message, to go from this place to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Again, we continue to look through uh, the book of Romans. And we're now on chapter 7. You'll find it on page 1133 of the church Bible. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a woman married, a married woman sorry, is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. for I know for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, "Do not covet," but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire for apart from the law apart from law sin is dead once i was alive apart from law but when the commandment came sin sprang to life and i died i found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment Put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, though the commandment, sorry, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who shall rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> now, you remember uh, last time uh, I was preaching, we looked at Romans chapter 6. And we looked at how Paul had been calling his readers to uh, turn away from sinfulness and turn towards God in their lives he had used uh, two illustrations to help us get to grips with what all this meant uh, to live uh, in the Christian life. Coming from um, chapter 5 into chapter 6, he had used the illustration of baptism, and he'd used it to illustrate our, our death and resurrection in union with Christ, as he told us that we had died to sin and we should no longer live in it. Rather, we should offer ourselves to God in his service. Then, In verse 14 of chapter 6, he had told us that we are not under law but under grace. However, that doesn't give us a license to go off and to live as we please. Rather, we are to live in a new kind of slavery. Rather than serving the tyrant's sin, we are to serve our new master who is God. Then in chapter 7, Paul takes the argument a little further with Uh, a third illustration from marriage in the the first six verses. And his attention is now turned to show and to prove to his readers and the Christians in Rome that they are no longer under law but under grace. The issue of the law keeps coming up in Romans, and chapter 7 here uh, is is the primary, primary focus of what Paul is speaking about and how the law affects the Christian life. Until now, Paul has told us that the law highlights sin, that it shows us our sinfulness. Remember back to chapter 3. Then in chapter 5, he explained that the law increases sinfulness when it was added. And now in in chapter 7, he is illustrating what it means for us to be freed from the law. Now, as I've said before, the it's important for us to understand that the original readers of, of Romans, um, who would, some of whom would have been Jewish by birth, thought a great deal about the law. They would have seen their relationship, some of them would have seen their relationship in terms of law-keeping, uh, their relationship with God in terms of law-keeping, uh, which meant, of course, you had food laws, you had temple ceremonies, you had circumcision and so on, For them, the law was very important. It was a means by which the people had a relationship with God. Yet Paul, as we've been looking through Romans, has been rewriting a lot of what they would have grown up with and would have assumed to be correct. He's shown us that the law is utterly powerless to bring us into a relationship with God. That relationship, he's told us, only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. So if that is all the case, what what happens to the law? Are we still bound to keep it? Are we still required to maintain it? And that, if you like, is the whole question that Paul now turns to in this chapter, Paul's basic point is simple uh, in the first six verses. Death releases us from keeping, having to keep the law. And he uses the illustration of marriage. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as, he, as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law... And is not an adulteress, even when she marries again. As long as a woman has married her husband and he is alive, she is bound to keep the law that she cannot marry another man. Yet once her husband dies, the law that kept her from marrying again is no longer valid. Death has rendered the law void. No longer does the woman have to keep that law. She is free to marry again if her husband has died. The law that binds her has been taken away, and she is now free to belong to someone else. So then Paul makes the application in verse 4, if you look. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Again, this follows the same pattern that we saw in chapter 6. We have died in union with Christ. In His death, that was our death. We have died to the law. That is, died to the need to keep the law as a means to make us right with God. And this happens through the death of Jesus, through the body of Christ. When we are united to Christ by faith, we no longer are under an obligation To keep the law as a means of salvation. The law has been rendered void. We are no longer under law. And having been released from the law, the purpose is that we might belong to another, or more literally here, that we might be married to another, that is to Christ. As we died with Christ, so our obligation to keep the law in Adam, as we were, remember back to chapter 5, was removed, that obligation is removed, and we are now married to Christ who has kept the law for us. And all this is so that we might bear fruit to God. See, again, Paul uses this idea of fruit in the Christian life. No longer do we serve sin and death and the law, now we serve God and we're married to Christ so that we live a life that is directed towards God and not towards our own selves, our own selfishness, sinfulness. So again, this is what the Christian life is like. Having been united to Christ by faith and his death and resurrection, we we are free from having to keep the law as a means to make us right with God. Moses doesn't save us, as some of the Jews of that time thought. As John has told us, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Indeed, when we were in Adam and controlled by the sinful nature, remember verse five, or chapter 5 again, that is, um, when we were... Uh, when, before we became a Christian, all the, the sinful desires and the longings that were, we had as a sinner were aroused by the very law once we heard it. What we assumed would bring us life, that is the law, actually brought us death. Far from Moses being able to make us righteous, rather this law of Moses, when we were still in Adam, invoked in us even more sinful desires. And so, we did not bear fruit for God, but we bore fruit for death. The explosive mixture of, on the one hand, the law of Moses and our sinful nature, when they come together, created a cocktail of poison that resulted in our destruction. But now, verse 6, things are different. As a Christian, you have died to the law. No longer are you under a, an obligation to keep it as a means of salvation. Rather, we are released from it and we have been freed to serve in a new way. Not the way of the written code, that is Moses again, the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. But rather in a way, in the way of the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is. Rather than having a set of laws which we must obey in order to be acceptable, We now serve God as those who have been made acceptable by the Spirit who works within us. What makes you say no to sin and yes to slavery to God? What makes you desire to live a life that pleases God and is lived for the good of others rather than for your own selfishness? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That's what makes the difference. The difference is the work of the Spirit in our lives when we become Christians. Now, to understand this, we must uh, see what the Spirit does as we are united to Christ and as he makes us new. Paul is comparing two ways of serving God here. On the one hand, there is the way to serve God through Moses. The law bellows at us from on high, like the Israelites who were at Mount Sinai. The law is written on tablets of stone and is to be obeyed by God's people. But the problem is we can't obey it because of what we saw in chapter 5. In Adam, we have a sinful nature. We have a fallen nature. But now, in the new way of the Spirit, something different happens. The very same law that came down from Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments That very same law is no longer an external voice bellowing at us in a voice of judgment, but is now an internal voice, a voice of desire, a voice of a new affection. Please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 24 to 28. And we will see here uh, essentially what? God has promised to do for his people. Ezekiel 36, verses 24, page 867. And verses 24 to 28. For I will take you out of the nation, says God to his people. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I will give to your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. Notice verse 27 there in particular. God is promising that his law will not be an external set of rules, but rather an internal desire that will move us to be careful, that will move his people to walk in his laws, to keep his laws. The new way of the Spirit here is what happens when you become a Christian. The heart changes, the life turns around towards God and others, and we desire to keep the law of God, not as a means of salvation, but as a means of obedience to the God who has saved us through Jesus Christ. The Spirit leads us to live a life that pleases God by doing what God desires, not what we desire in our own selfishness and sinfulness. Before becoming a Christian, when we looked at the law as a means to be right with God, it was impossible. But now, as we have the Spirit, we have died to the law and belong to Christ so that we keep the law as a as a mean, not as a means of salvation, but rather, as a pattern of obedience to our new master. It's like a servant woman, who came to work for a great lord in his manor. She was given kitchen duties, and in on the kitchen wall, the the Lord had kneeled a sign with a set of rules that she was expected to keep. The servant woman, in order to gain her master's favor, needed to keep those rules. But as time passed, the Lord and the servant girl get married, and now she's his wife. She still works in the kitchen, but the rules are no longer on the wall. She doesn't have to keep them, Now, to be in a right relationship with this great Lord, she is in a relationship with him for she's married to him. Yet, she still keeps those rules because she knows that's what her husband wants. But her motivation for keeping them is totally different. Before, she was motivated by fear of judgment, but now she's motivated by love for her husband. Before she had to keep the rules, now she wants to keep the rules. And between has to and wants, there is all the difference in the world. And this is the reality of the Christian life. We are now made new by the Spirit as we are united to Christ by faith and we live our life not by the written code but rather by the Spirit. Who changes our desires, our affections, and makes us walk in a way that is pleasing to God? Before we were Christians, the law was a word of judgment. Now it is a word of delight. For we want to please our new husband, our new master, our Savior, and our Lord. And so that is what Paul means when he says we are not under law, but under grace. And in, uh, Verse 15 of chapter 6. We have died to the law as a way of saving us, knowing that it was impossible anyway because of our sinful nature, and have been united to Christ and live by the Spirit. Then in verses 7 through to 25, Paul goes on to deal with other objections that he knows some people will bring up. Paul has his detractors those who want to try and poke holes in his argument or find holes. And he asks two questions, verses 7 and verses 13, and then he answers those questions. Now, it's good to point out at this this moment in time that from chapter 7, verse 6, you could go straight to chapter 8, verse 1, and you would not have missed anything to do with the main thrust of Paul's overall argument. Verses 7 through 25 are a side issue Paul uh, Paul needs to address. And it's a very good job he does address it for it teaches us some very important things. Uh, And these things have indeed been a a battleground of interpretation for a long time. Um, And in a lot of cases they've been used and misused to, uh, to give some very, very false teaching. But it's important Uh, that we understand that this, the reason why Paul is writing this is to answer these two questions. Um, Paul writes, in a way, in in an autobiographical sense, the language that he uses, and as he does write, as he writes that, it's it's very helpful for us because it it shows us uh, what the Christian life is actually like. But even so, it is an aside. It is addressed to specific questions. The topic is still the law, and he's answering these objections. He is not writing for us. He is not writing for us a theological treatise on the Christian life here. So we need to be very, very careful, ask the correct questions of the text. If we only ask the questions that the commentators and the scholars ask, then we'll have missed the point completely. All right. So firstly, Paul has to deal with the issue around the relationship between the law and sin, 7 through 13. Up to now, Paul has said a lot of very negative things about the law. It highlights sin. It increases sinfulness. It stirs up in us sinfulness, and we are no longer under its authority. So does that mean the law is then a bad thing? Is Paul saying then that the law given by God to to Moses and to the Jewish people, is it a bad thing? Or even worse, is it sinful? Now, of course, this is not really the type of question that you or I would be inclined to ask the great apostle if he showed up on our doorstep. But remember the very important place again that the law had for the Jews and indeed how law was understood in a first century context. Law was invariably seen as a good thing. And for the Jews, it was God's law. How could it be a bad thing? So from verses 7 to 13, Paul seeks to answer his critics and to prove that the law is actually a good thing. The law itself is not the problem. Rather, sin is the problem. And the way he does this is that he uses his own life as an example for us to show how sin exploits the law and the law exposes sin. Now, as I've said before, there's some disagreement over how we actually interpret this passage, even among those who believe the Bible. Um, So, I am taking this that Paul is speaking here of himself in the past tense. And he's using himself as a representative of all humanity, of every Christian, or of every non-Christian, all people in Adam. So is the law sin by no means, or certainly not, says Paul. Indeed, I would not have known that the law was what, the law, what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, "Do not covet." but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, apart from the law, sin is dead, although the law and sin have a very close relationship. They are two totally different things. For the law exposes sin and shows it up. The law becomes the torch that shines the light on sin so that we see what it is. Paul gives the example of coveting. Until the law defines sin in this way, it remains unexposed, even dead, as Paul says here. But once the law says to us, do not covet, then we see what coveting is. And what's more, sin then uses that law to produce all kinds of covetous desires. The law exposes sin to be sin, and then sin uses the law to invoke in us more sinfulness. Notice the way that Paul has begun to talk of sin here. It's not so much rebellion as we remember from chapter 1, but sin is a kind of cosmic power that is at work seeking to to bring death to us, to produce in us all kinds of sinfulness. Sin uses the law to achieve its own ends in us. When I was uh, quite young, and we used to go along to the swimming pool with my friends, uh, there used to be a great big sign on the wall of the swimming pool. It said, no bombing. You know what bombing is, don't you? You run up and you call yourself into a ball and you just plonk down into the swimming pool. Uh, For those of us who were quite chubby and fat, it was good fun. Um, But anyway, uh, this sign said, no bombing. Now, before I knew uh, what bombing was, I, I had absolutely no desire to do it. But once I saw for myself what bombing was, well, then I went ahead and did it. The rule was clear, no bombing but I wanted to break it. And I wanted to go ahead and do it even when the lifeguards would blow the whistle at you and send you out of the pool. But anyway, you want to break. I wanted to break the law. Sin is like that with the law. Paul in verses 9 to 11 uses his own life as an example for us, to see the way sin hijacks the good law and uses it to produce death in us. The very commandment that was theoretically to bring life actually ends up bringing death. For sin revived by the law springs to life, and Paul ends up a lawbreaker. So, the answer to the question raised in verse 7, Paul draws the conclusion in verse 11. The law is holy. The law is righteous and good. It is not, it is sin that is the problem. It is not the law. Like a knife in the hands of a murderer is used to bring death. It's not the fault of the knife. It's the person holding and using the knife that brings death. So it's not the fault of the law, rather it's sin using the law to provoke in us the desire to break the law and so we die. Before we're Christians, this is our experience. But does that mean then that the good law, which is holy and righteous, is responsible for bringing death to us? Verse 13, not at all, says Paul, rather it is sin that brings death. Sin through the law brings death, so that sin might be exposed and seen to be utterly sinful. Sin takes what is good and uses it to bring death. Sin takes the law of God that reflects his holy character and uses it to kill people. And so in this, it is seen to be supreme and awful in its evil and its sinfulness. That is the experience of Paul and us before we become a Christian. The law which we which we thought promised us life if we kept it, ended up bringing death because we are sinful and cannot keep it perfectly. Sin invoked in us all kinds of evil so that no matter how hard we tried to keep it, the law, how hard we tried to keep the law, we ended up breaking the law. But what about now? As we serve God in the new way of the Spirit, What about now, as we've been made new and have the law written on our hearts and our desires are changed to want to please God and obey Him? As a Christian, what about now? Paul moves into verse 14, describing his own experience again, but this time he moves from a past tense story into a present tense story about what his life is like now as a Christian how the new way of the Spirit is still a struggle because of sin that continues to dwell within us. Now, verses 14 to 25 have uh, brought some very complicated and many different ways that people want to actually interpret this passage, Uh, but I take it that the apostle here is describing for us his own experience of the struggle between his new life and the Spirit and the sinful nature, or more literally, his, his flesh, uh, the part of Adam that remains. We are made new and righteous when we are in Christ. Yet we still live in a fallen world and suffer from its fallenness, even when we have the Spirit living within us in this life. Now, some will want to disagree with this, and they will take other positions. Uh, But I think if we take it this way, it makes the most sense of what Paul actually says, both here and in other places as well. For example, Galatians, where he speaks about the same kind of issue, the struggle between the sinful nature and the spirit within us. So, Paul can say in verse 14 that he knows the law is spiritual That is, it is godly, it is holy, it is right, it is true. But he himself is unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And the result of that is an explosion of contradictions in the Christian life as we live in this age. For as Paul goes on to say, what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, that's exactly what he ends up doing. And this of course is the contradiction that all Christians face in their, in their lives. We desire to do what is good and we know that the law is correct, yet somehow we fail to do it and they end up doing the very things that we hate doing. Paul explains in verse 17 the reason that this takes place in our lives is because of indwelling sin. It is that sin is this sin that exploits the good law written on our hearts to produce a struggle between what we, what we know we should do and what we actually end up doing. Verse 18, nothing good lives within us. That is in the sinful nature, our flesh, the part of us that is still affected by being in Adam. And the result is that our deepest, the deepest part of us, as we are made new by the Spirit of God, desires to do what is good. We desire to live in a way that pleases God, and yet we cannot carry it out. We end up sinning. Before we had the Spirit, when we were in Adam, there wasn't even a struggle. We could not obey the law, and we continued in sin regardless. The fruit that we produced was death, but now that we have the Spirit, we desire to live in a way that pleases God, yet we struggle to do it because of our flesh because of the remains of Adam. And friends, this is the normal, everyday reality. This is the normal, everyday experience for a Christian. There is no quick-fix solutions out of it. There is no easy opt-outs. You will struggle with sin your whole life. But hopefully, you will also make a great deal of progress in holiness. As Paul has told us in chapter 6, we have to say no to sin and we have to live for God. But don't expect that to be easy. Even now, when we have the Spirit written and the law, and the Spirit writing the law in our hearts, moving us to walk in obedience to God, there is still a struggle. We desire to do what is right and good deep down in our being, yet utterly sinful sin still provokes us to do what is evil. And you see, when you have that struggle, that is a sign that you are being led by the Spirit of God, that God is at work in your life. As Paul says in verse 22, we desire in our inmost being to delight in God's law. Yet there is another law at work, the law of sin, which wages war against the law of our minds. We know what is right, good, and true, yet we fight to actually carry it out in our lives. And so we can say with Paul in verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as a Christian, even with this struggle with sin in our lives, we still have hope of deliverance. For when Christ comes back, this mortal body will be raised and sin will be taken away and there will be no more struggles with sin. But in this present life, as we look forward to our deliverance from sin and from being to be fully redeemed out of Adam, in our minds, verse 25, we will be slaves to God's law, seeking to obey him. Yet in our sinful nature, we will continue to be slaves to sin. The law of Moses was powerless to save us. It could not bring any change in us whatsoever. That's what Paul has shown us. So we need the Spirit to come and bring real change in our lives. To make us live in obedience to God. It's the grace that we receive in the Spirit that brings us life and hope for our deliverance. But that deliverance, that full rescue is coming, but not yet. Now we walk by the Spirit. Now we say no to sin and we live in obedience to our new master. Now we seek to please our new husband, Jesus Christ. But it's a fight. It's a struggle. It's hard. And sin will still try and hold us down and keep knocking us down and keep trying to hold us in bondage. But friends, we have... We've come to the end of Romans 7, but Romans 8 comes next. Romans 7 is hard. It makes it very plain that the Christian life isn't an easy one, and we shouldn't expect it to be. But Romans 8's coming. And with it comes great hope. With it comes great truth. A great joy that will make our hearts leap. It will tell us For our release, it will tell us of the hope that we have. It will tell us of the assurance that we can have, even as we struggle, even as we fight with sin now. But you'll have to come back tonight.